Hi there, and welcome to the Life Saving Gratitude Podcast. Last week, I introduced the my, that podcast episode as saying that I was going to be 61 in December, and I thought it might be helpful just this once to give you some insight into the hard lessons that I've learned, the the truths that have um, come to me, not because I um, did anything other than stumble and fall a lot. And I, I came up with a list before I created the, this podcast, and, and this is a continuation of last week, that were the 10 hard truths that I'd learned in, the lo- in, in my lifetime, over 60 years. And I, 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 I really, I, it, it's hard for me to do this because I feel like it's so much easier to sit down and talk to somebody else. It's so much simpler to um, pick the brain of somebody who I know knows more than me every single time. But but every once in a while, it's important to stop and listen to your heart and figure out all the things that are most important to you. So while I say these are hard truths, I don't think they're negative in any way. And I hope that someone out there somewhere will find this helpful and um, and, and will take a moment to figure out what they've learned in their lifetime and what's mattered most to them. I plan to live a lot longer. And so probably in 10 years, I'll have an entirely new set. But right now, these are the things that have come to me in, especially in the last year, as I wrote my book, Life-Saving Gratitude. And as we created this con, this um, podcast, I think it's important every once in a while to share the tiny little bit of wisdom that you might pick up in life, because maybe, maybe, maybe there's one person in the world that can benefit from it. I want you to know that there's a bonus at the end of this podcast. I'm going to tell you about the book I'm reading right now that I absolutely love, and I think you might like it too. But but let's get on. Last week, I talked about um, the the rules, the truths, the laws I know that I've learned in my own life, the first five. And today I'm going to start with number six, which is, and this one is really hard for me. You can't change or fix or save anyone else. You know, in in last week's podcast, I talked about my superhero status as a people pleaser, a condition for which I feel like I'm in recovery every single day. I, I really have all my life worked hard to make sure that everyone, everyone in the world and in my circle was perfectly happy. And, and I talked last week about how that's really a form of control. I want you to know, and I think this is two sides of the same coin. I am equally accomplished at thinking that I can change and fix people if they just listen long and hard enough. I mean, here I am. Um, you could say, here I am doing it again. What I hope is that you're going to see this bit of conversation as my love for my listeners more than any attempt to force feed you growth and improvement. This is not about me trying to change or fix you. It's just about me trying to share my expert status on my own life. And I have always felt like if I could just care enough about somebody, if I could just do the right things, that perhaps their brokenness would be less broken. 
And it's a really tough game, this game of thinking that you can change or fix someone, especially if it's someone you love. I've played it all my life. Like I said, I believed that my love had some incredible ability to turn an alcoholic or a rageaholic into a more self-loving, kinder, gentler version of him or herself. I did it with a couple of husbands. Um, I, I truly believed in those relationships that by being sweet and attentive and affirming and by cooking everything they loved and by keeping myself the perfect weight and by never showing up with broccoli in my teeth and by always being the perfect hostess, by somehow smothering them with affection and by just perhaps being just the teeth tiniest bit controlling, because really, how else are they going to get to happiness other than through me? I could turn them around psychically and emotionally. I, I honestly, I remember saying once to my mom, wow, I just, I mean, I can't believe that my loving this person this much isn't making a difference for them. And I, I just, I recently read something by, um, a of course, you all know, probably if you follow me, that Anne Lamott is one of my favorite authors. And she wrote this great piece in her book, um, Almost Everything, which I've, I've read over and over again. Um, in chapter two of that book, which she calls Inside Job, she says, there is almost nothing outside you that will help in any kind of lasting way unless you're waiting for it. A donor organ. You can't buy, achieve, or date serenity. Peace of mind is an inside job unrelated to fame, fortune, or whether your partner loves you. Horribly, what this means is that it is also an inside job for the few people you love most desperately in the world. We cannot arrange lasting safety or happiness for our most beloved people. They have to find their own ways and their own answers. Not one single person in history has gotten an alcoholic sober. Maybe you'll be the first, but I suspect you won't. That's the minute I read that, I thought, oh my God, that's me. I'm always thinking I can, um, through, through force of nature and, and, and love and care, I can change somebody's life. I have a sibling who has an alcohol addiction. And in my family, we go through cycles based on that sibling's current status. Is he drinking? Is he drinking a lot? Is he drinking a little? Um, is he doing okay today? And when he's sober, we count months. How long has he been sober this time? We are always watchful. We are always on alert because in my family, we still believe that every one of us can all individually do something that will help that person get and stay sober. And guess what? It hasn't happened. Anytime that he's gotten sober, anytime my ex-husbands found a little bit of light at the end of their particular tunnel, it had nothing to do with me or anyone else. Those people may go to their graves with those issues. Um, their wounds are really deep and raw. And my manipulation, because that's what it is when I start thinking that I can fix them, my manipulation does nothing more than exacerbate the things about the world that already make them crazy or angry. Um, 
they can't depend on outside sources for comfort. They've got to find it within themselves. And I can't think I'm going to be that outside source. Another thing that Anne Lamont says in the same, the same chapter is that the harm for us is in, or I'm sorry, the harm for them is in the unwanted help or in us helping them when they need to find the answer for themselves because help is the sunny side of control. And I'm just going to say that one more time. Help is the sunny side of control. I had an old boyfriend who had been, who had over 25 years of sobriety. And for several years, he lived through this agony that my family went through um, with the sibling I have who is an alcoholic. And he said, because he had been there, he said, He'll get better when he hits bottom. Your family just keeps moving the bottom. And in other words, he he said over and over, quit trying to soften his hard landings. He needs some hard landings before he's going to figure it out for himself. So my struggle has always been, how do I handle my inability to really help the people I love? It's a hard one for me. I always want to go back to my old habits of trying to coerce them with more of my good intentions. So only recently have I taken to heart things that I've learned from some of the people that have been on this podcast, in particular, Daphne Miller, who says, we cannot help anybody in our life to to fullness. We can't control them to a better and sweeter and kinder life. I have to remember, I am only responsible for, for my own life. So rather than thinking about what I can do to help slash control, I work hard on other things like taking long walks and deep breaths and reading really good books. I think a lot, once again, for what I'm grateful for and what I can do with myself that's going to make me a better person in the arenas where I can affect real change in the world, like fundraising for cancer patients, like maybe writing another book, like doing this podcast so that there is a glimmer of hope every once in a while for someone. I have to tell you that this podcast mostly helps me and I don't think it's controlling to try to help yourself. So this is a hard truth that I, and it's going to be one I struggle with for the rest of my life, but I can't change fix or save anyone else in the world. And I suspect that you can't either. So let's love ourselves best and let's get on with making the world a better place one day at a time and maybe one person at a time. And that takes me to my next law of life that I've, (laughs) that is so hard for me. They're all hard, but I've discovered in the last year that your impact on one life is just as important, if not more so, than being a super influencer. In fact, impact is the greatest gift that you can give the world at large. Positive impact, that is. Because there are two different kinds. You can have negative impact on the world as, as well. But it really, truly doesn't have to be the world at large. It only needs to be one person. So my rule number seven is stop trying to be a super influencer and concentrate on what you can do that will be impactful for one person. 
when I was editing my book, Life Saving Gratitude, I had some really grandiose dreams. I hoped for an interview on the Ellen Show. I mean, I I could see myself. I practiced what I was going to say, and and I had this dream that at the end of my interview, she'd present this fifty thousand dollar check to the Cancer Foundation for New Mexico. I also figured that sooner or later I'd get to be on the Good Life podcast and. I envisioned tens of thousands of Instagram fans. And I, I just, I had this idea that the minute my book went on the market, it would become a bestseller. So, so the hard truth is that now that Life Saving Gratitude has been published, none of that has happened. Um, Ellen hasn't called. I haven't been invited to be on any um, high level podcast and I don't have 10,000 Instagram followers. And you know what? What's happened instead has been really important. I've met some amazing people sort of accidentally. Um, Tanya Catan, who is the author of my one night stand with cancer and the new bestseller creative trespassing is now my friend. And she's also my writing coach for the next book. You might think that by extension, that means that Jen Sincero and Amy Poehler are my friends since they're her pals, but, but I, I don't know that they would think so. Um, but I'm, I'm acquainted with somebody who's having a, a huge impact on the world. Two of my favorite authors, um, Hampton Sides and Douglas Preston wrote blurbs for my book just because I asked them to. I'm now acquainted with a famous chef and cookbook author, Cheryl Jamison. Um, she lives here in Santa Fe and I reached out to her. Um, she offered to write a book as a blurb as well and check her out, buy her cookbooks because she's amazing. But all of that, all of that kind of peripheral contact with other people's fame doesn't mean nearly as much as what I've heard from people who are either in the midst of their journey with cancer or at the end of it. And I'm, I'm going to go um, out on a limb here and tell you about um, a friend that I went to lunch with recently, um, a woman who is a cancer survivor. And while we were sitting at lunch, we were talking with a couple of other women about my book and here's, and and I'll and I want to tell you how she described the book. But first, I want to know that I want you to know that when I was finishing up my book, my wishes made a swing from the unlikeliness of my being a bestseller to what I really wanted, to the real reason for going to the expense and headache, and frankly, the hard work of finishing and editing, and designing and conferring over cover designs. While I was doing all of that hard work, I realized that what I really wanted was a book that would have helped me on the day that I heard I had stage four cancer. I wanted what I wrote to make that hideous journey easier for one person. When I was diagnosed, I did, I did what I always do after I got on the internet, which was what my oncologist told me not to do. Um, after scaring myself to death with statistics surrounding stage four metastatic colon cancer, um, I started looking for books and I found one about a woman who had cancer at the same time as her dog. They both survived, but her cancer was stage two. That was, that's a terrible diagnosis, but I'm sorry, it wasn't as scary to me as what was happening to me. And I, I found a couple of other cancer books, but nothing that seemed to match 
what felt like the real hopelessness of what I was facing. Um, I, I, I had a lot of help, but I had no books. So, so what I wrote was to fill that hole and I finished the book with one person in mind, not multitudes, because frankly, the multitudes aren't going to like the ugliness of cancer. Um, only those that have been in the trenches with ports and PET scans and chemo infusions and hair loss and bleeding gums and split open guts get this one. So, so in a roundabout way, I've come back to the idea that you don't have to be a huge influencer to impact people. In fact, I would bet that those huge influencers are not really impacting a lot of lives any more than that one cute young couple I see dancing on TikTok all the time. Impact means this to me. Impact means helping one person at a time through a difficult period. And by the way, that impact usually starts with someone you love. So instead of trying to help and control and change them, we just want to provide them perhaps with a story that's going to make their journey a tiny bit easier. The rest is going to follow. So I said a minute ago that I wanted to tell you a story about what somebody told me about the book. And, and we were having lunch and these other two women were talking about, asking me about the book, what it's like, what it's like. And she said, hang on, I want to tell you what it's like for me. She said, I was diagnosed as a young woman over 40 years ago. And at the time that I was diagnosed, I was so busy surviving and getting through this, the news that I had a kind of cancer that was so rare, they didn't even know how to treat it, that I've never really dealt with the way I felt at the at that time. And she said, I've been reading Bunny's book. And she said, I can, I'm, she said, and I'm sorry. And, and of course, it's going to make me cry to tell it. But she said, I'm sorry, I can only... I can't tell this without crying, but she said, reading this book takes me back to that young girl who was so frightened and so paralyzed by her fear. And she said, I can only read a couple of pages at a time. And then I go back and I read them again. And it takes me back to how I felt over 40 years ago when life felt so helpless and it's so this book is helping me so much because it's helping me take a look again at what that meant to me and how it changed me. So by that time, we were all, everybody at the table was crying. Um, we were all um, really touched by what she said. But I thought to myself afterwards, when I got in the car, I thought, that's what it means. That's what it means to impact one person person at a time that I don't have to go on Ellen. I don't have to be on the good life podcast to know that I did the right thing at that moment. And it's the same thing when I'm, when I'm working on uh, fundraising for the cancer foundation for New Mexico, if one person who's sitting over there in the cancer center hearing today, you have cancer. If what we do at the foundation changes the life of one person, then it was well worth it. So 
the, the lesson I've learned is that I'm never going to be a super influencer. I'm never going to be Gary Vaynerchuk or Tom Ferry or any of those people who fill football stadiums with people who are buying their product. What I am going to do, I hope for the rest of my life is have some sort of a positive influence on one person at a time. And that brings me to, to lesson number eight. And this, this is the big rule of my life. It probably should be number 10 as a grand finale. Although the, those, the other things feel important to me too. This law is you really don't have time. Um, I wrote in the foreword to life-saving gratitude that I was writing a different book at the time. And, um, even after I got diagnosed with cancer, I continued to real stubbornly write that other book. And then I I picked up Father Patrick Boyle's book called Tattoos on the Heart. And in the foreword to his book, he says, um, I had, you know, I'd stored all these stories in my, um, in my head and in the homilies that I would bring when I was, when I was preaching all these stories about all the gang members that I was helping, but, but more importantly, how they were helping me because, uh, Dr. Boyle runs something called homeboy industries, which is a practice, a, a group, it's really an industry in LA that helps people get off the streets, helps gang members get out of gangs. And he said, I was diagnosed with cancer and I suddenly realized that death might not make an exception of me. And I thought, wait a second. Um, I, I, it's true. Death is not going to make an exception of me after all. So if I'm planning to do something right now is the time to do it. Um, I, I am very distantly acquainted with a realtor on social media whose wife is terminally ill and they're taking a week off every single month to do all the things that have been on her bucket list. Um, they're taking trips to Yosemite and the Grand Canyon. And if, and if her health holds out, they plan to go to Paris and Venice in the spring. They're really open about this travel and about her illness. A few weeks ago, they were at the International Balloon Fiesta in Albuquerque, even though they live somewhere in the South. And I messaged him on Facebook and said, I'd really love to meet you in person. But, but you know what? I didn't hear back because they're busy filling their lives with experiences. They don't need to meet me. And, and who can blame them? But I wonder if they wouldn't say to us, um, we wish we had done the things on our bucket list back before she got ill. We all have this notion that we can put off what's most important to us because, you know, we, we can do it next year or we can do it when we retire or when our big product launch is completed or when our kids are gone or when we get the bonus. So can I just tell you something? And I have to remind myself of this every day. You don't have time, or at least you don't have a guarantee of any time. Everything is impermanent. Either you or somebody you love isn't going to live forever. They might get that terminal diagnosis tomorrow, or like the young men that my friend Tiffany knows, they might have a terrible accident on their way to a homecoming football game and not survive. The one guarantee we all have 
is that we all will eventually die. And the other part of it is that if we don't die in our sleep or in a car accident, we might become ill. I know you're thinking, wow, this is so Debbie Downer, but I just, I so want to bring this fact home. You don't have time. I read a lot of Natalie Goldberg, and in one of her books, long ago, I read about a Tibetan practice suggesting that you talk about death every day. And I figured if she said it, it was worth trying. So when my kids were little, we talked about death. We didn't talk about how we would die and we weren't morbid, but we talked more about the practicalities. Like, um, I would say, you know what, be sure you give this turquoise necklace to this niece if I go first. Or when we would hear a Beatles song on the radio, I'd say, be sure that they play in my life at my funeral. We weren't strangers to death because we talked about it all the time. And because I'm from a huge family with over 60 first cousins and at least 16 aunts and uncles each on my mom's and my dad's sides, we went to a lot of funerals, mostly elderly uncles who made it to 90, but sometimes to sweet young cousins who passed away way far too early. So we were, we were not inexperienced with death. My suggestion is that to maybe keep yourself aware that you don't have time, you might want to consider talking about death every day in the kindest, sweetest, most offhand way possible. I know it's a tall order, but we know we need to be reminded that death is sitting out there on the fence of our lives, patiently waiting until the moment that our time, turn is up. So quit putting off what's important to you. For me, it was writing the book. Um, it was falling head over heels in love with somebody who was really worthy of me. It was sitting right here talking to you, impacting one person at a time in a positive way. And by discovering what's important to you, you can also take a long, hard look at what's not. You can decide how you want to spend your days and you can you can decide what you want to take out of your days. I just posted this quote from James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, which by the way, is a book that I highly recommend. James Clear says, in many cases, improvement isn't about doing more things right, but in doing less things wrong. Don't look for things to add, look for things to eliminate. I had a coach once who, uh, a business coach who challenged me to say no 10 times each week. And that was hard for me. It was really hard. I think like I've, like I've already told you, my job is, I, I felt like my job was always to say yes, to be sure that people were happy, except I was always frustrated at how little I was getting done. What mattered to me? I, I wasn't saying yes to my priorities, um, often enough. And once I had accomplished one week where I said no 10 times. She said, let's do it. Let's try it for a day. And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding? This is so hard. When somebody in my market center at Keller Williams asked me to take on a committee project, I said no. And when a client asked me to go to lunch the very next day, I said no, adding that I'd be happy to do it when I had more time on my calendar the next week. When someone at the Cancer Foundation asked me to pick up pieces on pick up the pieces on something they'd forgotten to do, I said no, and I struggled hard every time I said no that day. 
and I'll be really honest with you. I've never done that exercise again. I can't say no 10 times in a day, but it was pretty amazing to realize all the things that I was saying yes to. Because when I said no to one thing, I started giving myself space to say yes. I know very, very personally that we don't have time. I have had a doctor write a letter that said I had 12 months to live. I'm grateful that that didn't become the truth, but please, please remember, you don't have time. Don't put off something that's important to you. Be grateful for all that you have. Be grateful for the time that you've been given, and then remember that it's finite because it is. Here's my law number 10. I'm sorry, number nine. It's not failure if you don't quit. This is a really easy from one for me now. Um, it, it wouldn't have been 10 years ago. I would have thought, wow, what if that doesn't work out? What if I do it wrong? Um, but now I've said it so many times that it, it's, it's just anytime something's going wrong, I'll just say to myself, you know what? It's not failure if I don't quit. When your business fails, when a relationship falls apart, when you forget the most important part of the speech, like, like I'm doing here sometimes, when you screw up the relationship with somebody you really love by saying the worst possible thing at the worst possible time, and by the way, I'm the queen of this, just remember, it's not failure if you don't quit. Seth Godin, who, who is one of my best friends, even though he doesn't know it, says, and I'm, I'm quoting directly, the rule is simple. The person who fails the most will win. If I fail more than you do, I will win because in order to keep failing, you have to be good enough to keep playing. So in the last law, I said, you don't have time. You don't have time to overthink, to wait, to slink into the shadow, shadows when you're feeling like a failure. The old cliche about getting on the horse is a cliche because it's mostly true. So please remember, it's not failure if you don't quit. Write that down, put it on your bathroom mirror, and remind yourself that failure is not a bad word. It's just another step towards greatness. And finally, I want you to take this to heart, that gratitude is a strategy. We all tend to think of gratitude as a reaction, as in, wow, look at this amazing day I just had. Look at the wonderful friends I have. Look at this inspiring book. Look at our my stunning success in business this week. Boy, am I grateful for that, for that thing that happened. We always, or, or, or hopefully, we react to pleasant situations with gratitude. But here's an even more important way to look at gratitude. It is a strategy. There are about a thousand platitudes about gratitude that I can quote, so I'm going to leave those alone. But I know personally that making a choice ahead of time to be grateful, choosing gratitude over being miserable is a strategy and a plan that results in better outcomes. I, I don't know why. I know there's a science to it. I can't quote it right here. I'm just going to tell you, if you make that choice, it's going to make a difference. We, on this podcast, we talk about toxic positivity all the time, and I don't want to be guilty of being toxic, toxically positive, if that's a term. I am not suggesting that in the face of depression 
or abuse or horrible wrongs in society, you express gratitude. I am not grateful in any way that we had another school shooting in this country this week. I am not grateful for the anger and divisiveness in our country, for which there doesn't seem to be a cure. What I'm suggesting is that you choose to wake up with the words, thank you, thank you, thank you, in your mind. When you start the, the day that way, your brain is already starting to lean toward finding something for which it can express gratitude. And some days it's something as simple as the sunrise or as overwhelming as the good diagnosis, diagnosis, like the one a friend of mine got yesterday after all of us worried for weeks that she might have ovarian cancer. Some days you're going to be grateful. You're, you're going to find gratitude in your, in the, toddler, my toddler grandson's chubby little legs learning to come down the stairs rather than falling, or in a handwritten note that you get in the mail from somebody who thought of you days ago and then sent a card to surprise you. And, and by the way, this is always a really great strategy. It's a really great gratitude strategy that you can do where you express your gratitude and engender more gratitude for somebody else. Sit down and write a handwritten note to somebody you care about because nobody sends or gets handwritten notes anymore. Choosing gratitude when I was sick was a lifesaver for me and it still works. We had a tiny little hurdle in my family's emotional well-being last week, and for three days I agonized over it, over the things I said that I shouldn't have, over the things that I interpreted badly. And then on the fourth day, I chose instead the strategy of choosing gratitude. I said, I'm grateful for this complex family I have and for the surprising gifts that we all bring to the table during the holidays for the ways that we still come back together despite our differences. I also chose to do what I, re I recommended in my last podcast episode, which is to replace one negative thought with five positives. And every, every time I thought, ugh, I, that was awful, and I don't, I don't know how we're going to get past it, I made myself say five times, everything will be fine, we all love each other. Everything will be fine, we all love each other. I said it over and over. And you know, we're all good now. And perhaps I'm a little wiser for all my foibles. Gratitude is strategy. Choose gratitude. Choose it instead of pessimism or cursing your life. And say thank you three times tomorrow morning when you wake up. And then let me know how it's going. So those are my laws. Um, the last one was choose gratitude. It's a strategy. Number nine was it's not failure if you don't quit. Number eight was you don't really have time. Number seven was impact one life rather than trying to be a super influencer. And number six that I started with today is you can't change, fix, or save anyone else. So I promised that if you stuck around, I'd give you a bonus at the end. And, um, and here it is. I'm reading These Precious Days by Anne Patchett. And I've found so many truths in the essays that Anne Patchett writes. Um, one of my favorites was This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. And this, this book 
is even better. I've, I mean, that book, this is the story of a happy marriage. I've picked up and reread probably <laughs> 10 times. And, and they're essays that you don't have to read chronologically. You can just pick them up and make them a part of your day. But, um, these precious days is, I mean, it speaks to me because I feel like I'm in the midst of these precious days in my own life. She says so many things that touch me in so many ways. And I generally get to the end of an essay and I've got tears in my eyes because her words are so magical. Um, you may know her as a fiction writer. Um, she wrote Bel Canto. She wrote Patron Saint of Liars. She's written a dozen amazing books and someday I'd like to be Ann Patchett, but I just want to leave you with a line. When I was thinking about um, quoting something from the book for my listeners, I I, there were about 52 places in her essays that I could have quoted, but this is the piece that um, spoke to me the most. Um, they had a little scare where her husband um, had to go to the emergency room and see a cardiologist because they thought that he was having a heart attack. And she um, writes at the end of this chapter, she says, for as many times as the horrible thing happens, a thousand times in every day, the horrible thing passes us by. A meteor could be skating past Earth's atmosphere this very minute. We're never going to know how close we come to annihilation. But today I saw it. Everything I had and stood to lose and did not lose. Thanks to this fleeting clarity, the glow from the fluorescent tubes on the ceiling of the small cardiac recovery room lights up the entire world. That's what we want to remember. We want to remember how not, not the possibility of disaster, but how all these horrible things pass us by and instead give us life and love and light. I know that sounds a little Pollyannish, but you guys who know me know that for me, the truth is always pretty positive. So thanks for checking in. Thanks for being here. Thanks for following this podcast and for listening to my ramblings. Next week, we'll be back to our normal <laughs> scheduled podcasting with guests who have things that are much more important to say, but I, I'm so grateful for those of you who show up and hear me and who maybe go out and have a, an impact on one person at a time. Remember, we don't have a lot of time, so go out and do what's really important to you today. Thanks, everybody. That's all we've got today, friends. I want to thank you for joining the Life Saving Gratitude podcast with your host, Bunny Terry. That's me and my producer and assistant, Johanna Medina. We feel like we're in the business of sharing the stories that save us, and we hope you'll share as well by letting your friends and family know about the podcast. Follow and like us wherever you listen, and please take the time to leave a review. Whether it's a stellar comment or a suggestion, we are open to suggestions all the time. Also, follow us on Instagram at LifesavingGratitudePod. You can also follow me personally at Bunny Terry Santa Fe. You can sign up at my website at bunnyterry.com to receive weekly emails about how to become the ultimate gratitude nerd. Thanks so much for checking in. <laughs>